0: Mr. Sandman, bring me a
1: dream. Make him the cutest It's the Book and Film Globe podcast, and I'm your host, Neil pollack the greatest living American writer and the editor in chief of Book and Film Globe. www.bookandfilmglobe.com We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and other matters, cultural and political. I thought that August was going to be a dry month, a dead zone of sorts for the site, but there's been lots of great content, lots of great articles, and lots of great stuff to write about and talk about. This week, we're going to talk to Pablo Gallaga, one of our favorite critics, about two new products, The Sandman, now airing on Netflix. It's an adaptation of the Neil Gaiman comic book series, and also Prey which is airing on Hulu. And this is a Predator prequel movie set in 1719 in the Great Northern Plains. It's Predator versus Native Americans. What a great idea. I wish I'd thought of it. And it's a terrific movie. And Pablo will be here to talk about it in just a minute. And we're also going to talk to Rachel Llewellyn, our frequent contributor, about the Beavis and Butthead revival, now airing on Paramount+. But first, the Sandman and Pablo Gallaga. will be right back after this dreamy, Musical
2: interlude.
1: Pop culture reached a sort of holy grail on Friday with the release of The Sandman on Netflix. The Sandman. Is, a, is based on a Neil Gaiman comic book series from more than 30 years ago. And it was one of those um, pop culture franchises or products that people were said was unfilmable, that they thought would never get made, but now it's made. And Neil Gaiman has a big hand in it, and it's frankly really, really good. And maybe not surprisingly, but, but happily really, really good. Pablo Gallaga wrote a great piece for us in the past week about it and is here today to talk to me about The Sandman. Hello, Pablo. Hey, Neil. How's it going? It is going well. So, yes, um, I, I you have seen all ten episodes of what appears to now be the first season of The Sandman. I was traveling and did not get to watch it on, on its debut weekend, but I have seen the first episode, and I also saw, I read many of the comic books when they first came out, and I would agree with your assessment that it is incredibly good.
0: Not just that it's good, but it's accurate. I think, um, you know, the the worry with this adaptation and all of the times that it's been attempted to be adapted going all the way back to the 90s when the series was still being released as a comic book, uh, was that how do you put this on screen and be faithful to the source material? And they've done it. I just, I am, I'm shocked. That's, that's really right. all I can say. <laughs> I'm yeah, shocked that it they it pulled be- it off.
1: Well, because it's a, you know it was a very innovative and complicated comic book, especially for its time. You know, it had multiple timelines and lots of lots of over narration and huge splash pages with these elaborate graphics. And I mean, it's not that uh, today's um, TV and film is incapable of doing such things, and it, it is quite quite capable of it. But it's also really really easy to mess it up. And at least from what I saw in the first episode, it, it didn't mess it up at all.
0: And in fact, explain the terms of the story set it up really, really nicely. I thought, right. And it's less about the visuals and more about the density of the storytelling and all the connections that they have to convey. Uh, Cause these things pay off much later in the series. I mean, the, this uh, adaptation is only going to cover the first two story arcs of Gosh, I don't even know how many there are, but there's 75 issues of the comic, uh, 10 trade paperbacks, 10 volumes essentially. And uh they recently had the, the Audible adaptation of it that got a little bit further. They've released two volumes, and that gets probably about 15 or 20 issues into the comic book, which is like you know, light years ahead of where this series gets to, and it's still yeah, a lot of this is going to come back if they do future seasons of this, uh, this series.
1: Now, without giving anything away to anyone, anyone who's listening to this is probably at least marginally familiar with the Sandman, but maybe they're not. You could um, explain a little bit about the premise without spoiling too much.
0: Right. So uh, the story starts out in the early 20th century England. Uh, You've got a guy named Roderick Burgess whose son has passed away and he himself has become like this dark lord of magic, uh, the Lord Magus of the Ancient Order of Mysteries. He wants to reanimate his son, so he kind of hatches this plan to imprison, well, first summon and then imprison Death. So if he can capture Death, he can ask Death to bring his son back. Uh, Instead, he accidentally imprisons her brother, Dream, or the Sandman, or Lord Morpheus of the Dreaming. Uh, and then steals his tools, which are what give Dream his power. And in the meantime, he's demanding these gifts, like, uh, can you make me immortal? Can you do anything for me that I was expecting Death could do for me? And while that's going on, the whole world is suffering from what would happen if the king of the Dreaming disappeared, which is, you know, they can't sleep, or if they are already asleep, they're basically in a deep coma now. Like, the whole world is in disarray because of this thing that this mortal did to capture Um a a being of great power. It's a, it's a massive sleeping disorder. Basically there is there's no, right.
1: mel, there's no melatonin, there's no ambient, <laughs> you know, you're not, no one's taking potassium
0: supplements at night. Uh, none of that's helping. None of that will work. You are just asleep essentially forever. So the first half of the season uh, really is this sort of revenge story. Cause you know, he's a monarch who's been captured by this lowly man and he resents that. So you've got, that is the first half of the story. And then the back half of the season is when the the family of Dream comes into play. And anyone who's read the comics tells you that that's when, like, it really gets good. And that's the, the bread and butter of the series. And that's not until the—there's you know, ten
1: episodes, and that's not until the back half.
0: Yeah, episode six is going to be the episode. You know, every good series has that one episode everyone talks about. This will be episode six.
1: Okay, well, that's something for me to look forward to, and you know, it's I'm only five hours away from it, so it's it's just a, basically a, cross, a flight to Iceland or something. Not like not like I have one of those scheduled, but I'm just trying to think of like where when can or when can I schedule five hours in. But I mean, the thing. So I haven't even met like the majority of the cast for this show. You've been
0: no, met? it is an expansive cast. It is this is just a well cast series all around. Um, in terms of, you know, there was the controversy about diversity, you know, the people that were kind of uh, coming at Neil Gaiman saying that he had gone woke with this series, whereas, you know, the comic was always woke to begin with. But uh, yeah, and then you've got like all this wealth of beloved character actors and geek favorites like Charles Dance, uh, Stephen Fry, uh, Patton Oswalt's voices a main character, Mark Hamill does, John Cameron Mitchell has a cameo, and uh, Sarah Niles from Ted Lasso. like it's just a great cast.
1: And, you know, Gwendolyn Christie of course. From, from Game of Thrones, who is to say the least a geek favorite, uh, and uh, Jenna Coleman, uh, one of the a Doctor Who companion, is also in it. So yeah, so like like you said, it really spans a lot of different fandoms. But the main character is uh, Morpheus, and he's played by an actor named Tom Sturridge, who I would, honestly am not that familiar with. He, he has kind of a Robert Pattinson thing going on. He definitely does.
0: He's been around for a bit, but I mean, yeah, his his credits are Velvet Buzzsaw, uh, the Mary Shelley movie with Elle Fanning. That's about it. So I think they kind of wanted to go unknown, sort of, with him, and you know, it worked. He nails it. He is he is Dream. He is him. Like that is exactly just off the page. It is exactly the character.
1: Yeah, he's he is terrific. And and again, in that first episode, he mostly spends
0: the episode glowering in a cage. He's not even talking that much. And that is direct translation off the page. Like that is, you know, the first issue of the comic is pretty much that. I'm assuming he um, he has he has more to do in subsequent episodes. Yeah, and it's, um, it's one of those things where he had to have the voice, he had to have the presence, like all of that is there.
1: Yeah, yeah, so all of that's really good. You know, it's funny that um, this is such a good show especially when you compare it to other Neil Gaiman TV adaptations, there have been several in the last few years, you know, good omens, which, which is based on a novel he wrote with Terry Pratchett starred uh, David Tennant and Michael Sheen. And I thought it, it was funny. Um, yeah, and it, was, it was fun. I, I felt like, you know, it, I got tired of it by the end. Um, it wasn't bad. American gods, which, uh, I don't, I think they've canceled it now, but aired on stars. Uh, I thought that show was really quite lousy. And one of the reasons it was so
0: bad was because they deviated so much from the source material. Yeah, that's always the cardinal sin. If you deviate from the source material, things are just going to go badly, especially with something like a Neil Gaiman story. So, yeah, I would agree. Uh, Good Omens was good. Uh, American Gods started out okay and then definitely went downhill. Yeah, and the Sandman is – they've guaranteed at least a second season, right? It's got to. It's getting critical acclaim left and right. It's just – it's a huge I can't hit. see them it's not at least doing the second season.
1: It's a huge hit. I mean, it's number one on Netflix as we speak. And, you know, I you can't really fault it. You know, honestly, for all, all the problems in the world, our pop culture seems to just be getting better and better. I thought August was going to be a dead zone. You know, just, there's nothing. Nothing coming out in August. And then this shows up, and I'm like, well, now I've got to mark out another day or two on my calendar to watch TV.
0: Yeah, and as you said, it could have been a disaster. So I've had it marked on my calendar for some time, and I was a little anxious, but, I mean, it was, it's great. And it, it's bingeable. Don't don't worry about the five hours to get there. Just binge it. You'll, you'll be able to do it. I'm on it, man. So
1: speaking of things that could have been a disaster but weren't, up next, Pablo and I are going to talk about a Predator prequel movie called Prey, and we will be right back after this musical interlude. Pablo Gallaga is still here. Let's face it, he and I live together. We just watch TV together all the time. And we so, watch geeky stuff. Yeah, all the time. We actually, we're married. All right. <laughs> Not really, but we, uh, we do like a lot of the same uh, pop culture. And one thing that we can agree on this week is that the new Predator movie, Prey, which is now airing on Hulu, but really should be airing in movie theaters, let's face it, is really good. And Pablo gave it four stars in Book and Film Globe. I would heartily agree with that assessment. I, as we're talking, I just watched that movie today and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Pablo uh, reviewed it this week and we're going to talk
0: about it. So yes, Pablo, so pray, give us a little setup for what this is. First of all, it is fun. Like that's what matters on these sort of prequels going back to you know, Predator, uh, the Alien franchise, which has not done so well going back for its prequels. Uh, so this story, what's what they did that was interesting is the setting was a huge change, a huge deviation from what we've seen or expected from Predator in the past. So this one is set in the early 18th century Great Northern Plains with a Comanche tribe that is uh, encountering the Predator in their basically their turf. So you've got this young woman named Nauru. Uh, who's you know her older brother is the kind of you know prodigal son who's going to become the war chief and he 's on a fast track to accomplish that, but she 's an accomplished hunter herself and she accompanies them out on hunts all the time, and she really wants to go through this rite of passage called Kutamiya, which is basically uh, you know going one on one with a big beast like a lion or a bear, killing it and bringing it back to camp, and that basically means you 've you know arrived as a warrior. But, as she's training out there uh, in the wilderness, she starts to see signs of some you know, something awful out there is killing animals. it's skinning them. It's doing things much worse than what she's seen from the French fur trappers that are all around. and uh, she's really on this collision course with uh Yucha, which is the name for a predator, kind of like xenomorph for an alien. Uh, but that's it's you know just different than what we've seen in past films for the predator, where you know this this guy's a primitive version about three hundred years past where he's got a lot of the similar technology, but it's, you know, proto versions of it and still kind of keeps the interest of anyone who's, you know, a big Predator fan.
1: Yeah, well, not only is our heroine um, a great hunter, but she also has many skills. She's also a, because she is a woman, uh, she, in addition to being a hunter, she, ha- she is skilled in the arts of healing. And she's also a very, very intelligent. Uh, she's, she'd probably be someone you'd want on your pub trivia team uh if 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 there were a pub trivia team in in 1719 uh Colorado or wherever where wherever it says so she's she's skilled in many different ways um and uh i don't know and she is a uh she and the predator are well matched and it's such a clever interpretation of of the predator myth because you know the in the past the predator's best match was arnold schwarzenegger Right, and it's
0: always come back to you know smarter not harder. And you know Arnold was part of a mercenary troop, and they all get you know eviscerated basically, despite all their firepower. But it comes down to Arnold just being smarter in the end. And that's you know the same. You're on the same track here with this one.
1: The woman who plays Naru is named Amber uh, Mid Thunder. She's a Native American actress. Uh, She is familiar to viewers of, of Netflix uh, as a, she's the main character on Roswell, New Mexico, uh, it's a, which is a show that my wife watches and she was immediately familiar uh, to her, if not to me. And but boy, she is, she is terrific in this. She's so magnetic, uh, you know she, she has the physicality necessary to be an action hero, uh, but she also just, she really, like, um, she really embodies the role. It's such a uh, standout role.
0: She was also a beloved side character on Legion Uh, She played Carrie, the the twin on Legion, and she was great there as well. Uh, She's actually part of the Fort Peck Sioux tribe. So yeah, like the, the, you know, involvement of Indigenous peoples in the production of this was a big deal as well. Uh, Her brother is played by Dakota Beavers. And I believe uh, a producer on the film uh, by the name of Jane Myers is also a Comanche woman. So they had a, a First Nations internship program on the set so they could have you know, uh, First Nations people working on the film, and also Hulu is offering um, Comanche language dub for this film for the first time ever. Oh, that's that's crazy. So, you know, this this to me is how you do representation, right? It's not
1: there's right. no there's no tokenism. Um, it's it is just an exciting, fun action movie set in um, kind of pre-colonial Comanche culture, right? And I mean, it's just such a clever concept it was written by a couple as far as i can tell by a couple of white guys and directed by by a white guy but it doesn't matter it's just such a clever um and, and and smart and and fun look at that world and 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 not not in a condescending way at all it's like it's it's you know as much as you can believe anything in the predator universe it's completely plausible
0: yeah, it's a case where Dan Trachtenberg really listened to the advisors like Jane Myers and wanted the authenticity. And, you know, they she went and spoke with you know tribes people and got their their blessing on things. And that's why it feels right. Also, we cannot.
1: Uh, well, first of all, there's a lot of CGI animals in this movie, right? There's a CGI bear who's su- that's super scary, although not compared with the predator. There's a CGI lion. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of animal action that's really quite exciting and the movie also contains one of the best dogs in, I love
0: that dog. In modern movie history.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nauru has this dog who helps her track. Um, and, uh, that dog is, is extremely, um, intrepid. Let us say, you know, it's a, well, a good match for, for, for Buck from call of the wild. There's that lousy call of the wild movie with, um, Harrison Ford. This is the dog that Buck wishes it were in that movie. Right. It's, it's so brave. It's, and, and it always seems to be uh, available, you know, to, to do, to, to help. Um, and and it, it is as good at fighting the Predator, better at fighting the Predator than a lot of the Comanche warriors. Although I will say that um, Daru's brother, the guy, Dakota Beavers, who plays the brother, brothers, also, I think, really terrific in this movie.
0: Yeah, that's a breakout performance right there. The dog's real, right? That's no, no way that dog was CGI. That was a very well-trained dog.
1: It's a real um, dog. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: it's a real dog. Although I'm sure there are some some mo- some enhanced moments, of sort of leaping at the predator with an axe kind of moments. That I don't know. I got a couple of Boston terriers, and I I don't think well, I don't think they, the predator would consider them threats. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think they'd be. I think I think I would be okay too. I think it would. It, it, the predator would kind of just pass by I me. Mean, that's what's so cool about this movie. It really emphasizes that sort of code of the predator, which is that he only hunts threats is he's like a trophy hunter
0: right and there's plenty of echoes back to the things that helped arnold in the past or danny glover i mean you've got like the reference to the mud you've got um like the intercut scene of them patching up their wounds at the same time as the predator's doing it like it's just it it knows the source material
1: the one thing it does that is really cool is there's this um, herb or this flower Mm. that cools the blood And so if you ingest it, the Predator's heat sensors don't detect you, (laughs) which is so – I'm like, that's that's just so clever.
0: Yeah, that's – the last time I saw something clever that addressed the sort of um, infrared vision was actually the bad movie of Predators, the – what was it? The Troublemaker Studios one where um, instead they lit fire everywhere so that, you know, obviously that would mess up his vision if everything is hot um that's the last time there was something kind of clever in that way but i feel like this was more clever
1: i would just cover myself with ben gay
0: <laughs> that that would work that would do the trick
1: I, I would do it and it would soothe my aching muscles which i would need if i were fighting the predator so all right prey is on hulu now I, as i said pablo like it really it's it really be in the theater put it, it be in the, the theater. theater right i mean i mean how much Please. fun would this, to watch in the theater
0: yeah people would lose it yeah it needs to be in the theater yeah, well, may, well, you know, maybe,
1: maybe you know, we live in Austin. Maybe the Alamo will figure out a way to screen it. I, I would see it again. I mean, it, it, you know, it's not long, and you know, there's no, there's no fat on it.
0: It's, it's a really fun movie. I would go out of my way to see it in the theater.
1: All right, Pablo and I give Prey two thumbs up. We did, kind of sounded Siskel and Eberty in this one, I thought. A little bit, yeah. A little bit, but we're not. So, uh, Pablo, uh, thanks for writing some great pieces for us this week, and we will talk to you. Thank you. 90s kids will remember Beavis and Butthead The animated segment on MTV That would air Where uh, these two teenage dorks Uh, made horny teenage dorks made fun of music videos and it was a sort of iconic gen x pop culture property and now beavis and butthead are back with new episodes created by mike judge on paramount plus and our favorite 90s kid rachel Llewellyn has written it up and is here to talk to me about it. hello
2: hi neil thanks for having me
1: of course always so all right so beavis and butthead revival started with a movie Right, there was a movie first, and now there are episodes. So, what is there's a sort of a basic premise to these new episodes?
2: Yeah, yes there there was. A Beavis and embedded do the universe came out, and that was sort of the premise for dropping this new season of the show revival. Um, it's coming back in pretty much the the same kind of form. Uh, with some slight updates. They've got a flat-screen TV in their house instead of, you know, a regular one. Um, but, yeah, it's it's kind of riding on themes of the, of the movie, uh, Beavis and Bedhead Do the Universe, which itself is a sequel of Beavis and ben Do America. It picks up just a couple years later in the story, and, you know, they get sent through a wormhole, which explains them being gone for the last 22 years, and then they encounter 2022 and all of its glory. And, you know, it, they do a good job of it. I think Mike Judge wanted to set up sort of, I guess, the, a parallel universe element where you'll see multiple versions of Beavis and and you'll see like middle-aged versions of them and there's super smart alien versions. So the the aim with the movie was to sort of set up these multiple narrative possibilities to play with all of the iterations in the show while retaining in Mike Judge's words that pure nature of the characters so we see them in 2020 but remarkably they, they're not really changed much.
1: So uh, in the show have does the show acknowledge that they traveled through the wormhole or is it just kind of there?
2: It just sort of picks up I'm pretty much after the events of the movie where they're just back in their previous forms and the animation is exactly the same and you know we see a lot of the same you know uh the same language, my judge was asked why, you know, you could have cranked up the, the swearing and stuff, but they keep it everything really simple. You got simple gags. You've got these sort of innocent insults. He really wanted to keep the spirit where they're not, you know, uh, there's sort of an innocent quality about them. So they just pick right up in 2022. And, and but a lot of the themes are older. You know, they get stuck on a roof. There's like a bishop stuck in mouth. I mean, they're classic gags. Mike Judge really wanted to model this show after one of his classic comfort watches, which is the Beverly Hobillies. Just full of ridiculous characters. Nobody learns. Nobody moralizes deeply. But you don't have to think deeply either. And he really wanted to style Beavis and Butthead after it. And that's that's really how a lot of 90s kids feel about his work now as they're seeing, you know, the new series.
1: All right, so, but the the major, the most iconic thing, the thing that I remember and that was most popular about Beavis and Butthead was their just kind of uh, mystery style, science theater 3000 style riffing on bad music videos uh, or other pop culture uh, properties, and I'm assuming that that is still part of the show.
2: It is, yes. They not only are still kind of clowning on music videos, which, you know, is... His wit is as sharp as ever with that, uh, but they're also incorporating things like YouTube videos and TikTok videos. You know, they they looked at this these online platform trends of watch, pe- you know, watching videos and reacting to videos. So they said, "Oh, we've been doing that since we've been making Beavis and Butthead*. Let's just incorporate this modern platform." So it was a pretty smooth transition with that current trend. Now, with you know the classic trope from the show,
1: so they make fun of TikTok morons and they make fun of, of, of YouTube celebrities. I'm guessing
2: Yes. asmr videos oh, yeah. bts music videos which beavis is revealed to be a closet bts fan and so is mike judge apparently he just well he's not really a closet fan he just straight out comes he comes out and says i oh, know i like him so apparently he has pretty pretty poppy taste in music
1: yeah so they make fun of bts and they make fun of country music and you say that the i seem to re- we emailed about this uh, there's future videos coming up making fun of post malone yeah. Olivia Rodrigo, all this sort of pop culture, which is stuff that seems like it's it's inevitable now, but you know, in ten or fifteen years, will be the detritus of our current pop culture.
2: Yes, absolutely. But as with the show, it's still funny to go back and watch these old '90s videos. Uh, you know, these old '90s music videos. It's still funny for us. So I, I hopefully, uh, twenty years from now, that material will still be pretty fresh and really. You know, the timelessness of the show rests on the fact that, you know, these, they're pure, almost id, in the sense that they embody these really timeless and unchanging, you know, pillars of male adolescence, you know, fire, food, chicks, instant gratification. You know, the the lizard brain is, you can put that in any context and make the stories funny. And they're still pretty positive people in terms of if you watch the old show and the new show, they're ultimately supposed to be sympathetic they they know themselves in terms of their likes and tastes they're optimistic about their abilities and the way the world views them no matter how bad things get and that's that's sort of sweetly naive and and we like watching shows that are sort of like that and in these troubled times
1: beavis and butthead a salve for our troubled times okay (laughs) why not Why not? You know, we could use as as many uh, salves as we can get. Rachel Llewellyn <laughs> wrote about the Beavis and Butthead revival on Paramount Plus for us this week. Good to talk to you as always, Rachel.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> that was set on,
1: yeah. All right. Thanks, Rachel Llewellyn, for talking to me about Beavis and Butthead. Mike Judge will be bringing King of the Hill back soon, I heard, and that's gonna be very exciting. I wanna see what the Hill family of Arlen, Texas, is up to in 2022 or 2023. Whenever this airs, they're gonna be in the future, and they're not going to like it, or at least Hank Hill isn't going to like it. Also, thanks, Pablo Gayaga for talking to me about the terrific Sandman series now airing on Netflix, and the excellent movie Prey, the Predator prequel, now airing on Hulu. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Thanks for reading the site. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for falling asleep and creating the dreaming with the Sandman. I will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Bookhouse, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to The Bookhouse Milburn, M I L L B U R to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts. TheBookhouseMilburn.com.
2: Audio Hopper.